Morning, Keystone. Uh, we started this series on prayer last week that we'll be in leading up to life action, uh, and then uh, most likely the week after life action as well. Uh, recognizing that, that prayer in some ways is uh, sort of like learning a, a new language. Um, ha- does anyone in here know a, a second language or English is your second language? Just curious. Okay, a couple. All right. Uh, if, if you could think back to how you learned that language, or even if you could think back and remember as you were a kid how, how you learned English, I would guess a large part of it was in hearing other people talk hearing your parents or friends or maybe an app on the phone speaking, using words and pronunciation and saying sentences. And and as you listened, then more and more you kind of took on that that language as well. And the the same kind of reality often applies to our, our praying, that we learn and grow in praying in large part by listening to others whether it's listening to the, the prayers of other people or listening to the, the words of Scripture and what we find in the Bible. And, and so this series on prayer really seeks to combine both of those things. As we listen in on and learn from the prayers of Paul that we find as we read through the New Testament and his letters in the New Testament. And so combine listening to his words that are ultimately the words of Scripture that we might grow in prayer. And there's really two kind of goals or hopes with the series. The first is just what Brandon was hitting on, that we, as we lead up to life action, might be encouraged and equipped to be praying for that week. But the second is much more broad than that. And it's just that our praying would become more and more shaped by the scriptures and more and more shaped by God's heart and God's priorities and not just what we want or what's most pressing to us in the moment, although those things are important as we pray as well. And so last week we, we looked at Paul's first prayer in Ephesians, uh, and this week we'll look at his second prayer in that book uh, in Ephesians three fourteen through 21. And so if you have your Bibles, you, you can open up there this morning. That's where we'll be at. I, I would guess everyone or most everyone in here has used this phrase or some version of this phrase at some point in your life. It doesn't feel real yet. It doesn't feel real yet. The, the idea being that there's something that happened or there's some truth that hasn't quite sunk down in yet. Uh, I can remember when I was uh, hired by Keystone uh, for the preaching pastor role, uh, that there was a gap between when I was hired, which was in uh, June, I think, of 2021, to, to when that role really became effective, uh, January of 2022. And in the middle of that gap, people would sometimes ask, uh, how's the new role? How are you feeling? Are you excited about it? What's, what's it like? And my kind of cliche response would be, it's good, uh, but it doesn't feel real yet. It doesn't feel real yet. And in fact, it didn't really feel real until January 2022, where, where all of a sudden then what was true, Kyle, you've been hired for this new role, became real to me in many ways. The same thing has probably happened in your life in some area. Whether it's some big event that's happened in your life, whether good or bad, it doesn't feel real yet. It hasn't sunk in yet. Maybe it's a life change, like getting married or having a kid or getting a new job, or maybe just a dream coming true. 
where we, we use this wording, it doesn't feel real yet to describe that it's true, it's happened, but it hasn't sunken down into us yet. See, what, what's true doesn't always feel real. Or another way to put that is what's objectively true doesn't always feel subjectively true to us. And, and this is a challenge for us spiritually as well. That when we, when we come to the Bible, we, we confront all sorts of wonderful and life-changing and all-inducing truths. In fact, part of why we want to be people who know the Bible and are saturated in it because we, we believe it's the standard for truth. It's where God reveals what's true and false. And so we want to know it. It, and it's important to recognize with that that it, when we don't feel that something is true, still if the scripture reveals it as being true, if God's real is true, then, then we believe it and act according on it. That our feelings don't determine what's true and false, but, but God does and what he's revealed. But, but we should also, I would say, long for what's true to feel real. What I mean by that is we should, we should long for not just more factual knowledge, but experiential knowledge in our lives. That we should long for the, the truth that's in our heads to drop down into our hearts and be something we feel and experience. That we should long for what's true but doesn't feel real to feel more and more and more and more real in our lives. This is what Paul's praying for in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 for us as Christians for the Ephesians and for us today who know Christ. This is a large part of what he's praying for, that we might gain experiential knowledge, that we might uh, have the truth from our heads drop to our hearts that what's true would feel real. And, and so the, the big idea that we'll, what we'll be driving this morning as we look at this passage is this. We pray for God's power to take what is really true and make it truly real in our lives. We, take, we pray for God's power to take what is truly real and make it really, or what is really true and make it truly real in our lives. And only God is able to do that, as we'll see. So let me pray, and then we'll read Paul's prayer in Ephesians three fourteen through 21. Father, we are weak, needy, dependent, and powerless in so many ways. The changes that we long to see or maybe don't even long to see, but, but should long for, we're w- unable to bring about in ourselves. That's part of why prayer is such a necessary thing for our lives, it's to come before you, our good Father in heaven, who has all power and is able to accomplish all things, and to call out to you to do what we can't do. So I pray that you'd be doing that even this morning whether it's things that, that are new to us, we've not thought about these truths before, or more likely that it, it's things that we know and we've heard, but that you would drop the reality of them down into our hearts so they might shape and affect us deeply. I pray that you do that through the power of your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth as named, that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The first thing we might just see, even in the first couple verses of this prayer, 14 and 15, is this. That prayer is a means God uses to take what's true and make it real in our lives. Prayer is a means God uses. Not the only means, not the only one at all, but one of the means that God uses to take what's true and make it real in our lives. We can see this demonstrated here in these first couple of verses, and I just want to point out three things here with these. The first is this. Prayer should not be disconnected from theology, what we know and believe about God. Paul's prayer here and elsewhere when he prays in his letters, his prayers are deeply rooted in what he knows and believes about God from the scriptures. In fact, we we can just see how what he prays here is actually based on what he's already taught in this letter to the Ephesians. So he prays, bowing his knees before the Father. Why? Because earlier in Ephesians 2.18, he taught, through him, Jesus, we both, Jews, Gentiles, everyone, have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul knows that through Christ God becomes our father and we have free access to him. And so he prays according to that truth. And then he prays to God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This seems to be a reference to God's authority and sovereignty over all people and all things. And earlier in Ephesians, Paul taught that God is the one who works all things, everything, according to the counsel of his will. He has all authority. He rules sovereign over all things, all people, everywhere. And so Paul prays in line with that truth. And then he prays that according to the riches of his glory, God might act. He's he's already taught that all who've trusted Christ, repented, turned from sin, and trusted in Jesus alone to save them, have been raised with Christ and seated with him so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He, he knows God has immeasurable riches set aside for his people in Christ, and so Paul prays from that truth. Do you see how Paul's theology shapes, grounds, and infects his praying? And, and it should for us as well. Prayer is not just this act of calling out to some vague God or higher power, as if there's merit in the act of praying itself. 
prayer is speaking to a living, real God who's revealed himself. And if it's not, then prayer is just wishful thinking. Just wishful thinking that hits the ceiling and makes no difference unless there's a living, real, true God who's made himself known. And the more we know him, the more depth there is in our praying to him. But, but we should just as quickly see theology should not be disconnected from relationship. Paul isn't writing this letter that's so full, along with all of his letters, of these rich theological truths about who God is, about the gospel, about who we are in Christ, so that we can excel the next time the Bible category shows up on Jeopardy. Paul's not writing so that we have the right facts and answers to Bible trivia. Paul is writing and teaching these theological truths because he wants us, the Ephesians, and us today as Christians to grow in relationship with the living God. There's a danger, perhaps especially for people who value the authority of the scriptures, who want to believe right doctrine, who prioritize that, which is a really, really good thing, both of those. But there's a danger that we start to shrink Christianity down to just having the right beliefs and the right answers and the right truths. And if we do, we miss it big time. Because we miss that ultimately all that is to lead us into deeper communion with the living God. It's not just about having the right beliefs, the right answers, the right knowledge. It's about encountering God who all of it points us to. And and this is part of why prayer is such a massively important part of our lives. Because prayer connects theology with relationship. Theology provides us with the substance to better know God and enjoy God. The, The Bible provides us with the substance. And then as we speak to God in prayer, our theology gets ironed out down into who we are as we commune with the living God. Or another way to put that is prayer is a means of processing the truth in relationship with God so that it drops from our heads down into our hearts more and more. When I deposit a check in my banking account, which I rarely do anymore because most things are direct deposit. But when I deposit a check through my phone, I take a picture of it and and then I deposit it. But those funds are not immediately available to me unless I pay an extra fee, but I'm not going to pay that fee. They're not immediately available to me. It takes a day or two days or three days for that check to process. And so what is mine doesn't fully become mine to draw from until it processes and drops into my account. Prayer is a means of processing what we know to be true of God, the truth in our heads, in relationship with him, that we grow in experience with him, and so that it drops into our hearts and becomes a resource that we can draw joy and hope and peace and courage from because we're speaking to the one that we know. We're speaking to the God who's really real and we're communing with him. And he takes what we know about him in our heads and drops it into our hearts so that it becomes powerful in our lives. Paul's going to pray for that in two areas. Or he's going to pray that this would happen according to two truths in his two requests in this prayer. First, with our identity in Christ. And second, with the love of Christ 
for us, praying that what's true would become a reality. So we can see, first of all, that we should pray that your spiritual identity in Christ would be your lived reality. Pray that your, mine, our spiritual identity in Christ would be our actual lived reality. Paul's first request is this, that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's the grounding or maybe background of this prayer. That when when someone trusts in Christ, puts their faith in him to save them, that that moment, that person becomes united with Christ in a very real and yet unseen way through the Holy Spirit. It's one way to talk about salvation. So we become united with Christ through faith. This is union language, or, or as Pastor Charlie likes to call it, it's identity language. It's the fact that we are found in Christ and he is in us. And that's true from the moment God saves us. Our identity is in Christ. But it's really hard for us to grasp at times. I don't know if you felt that, but I felt that. It's really hard for us to grasp at times. So what does that mean? What impact should that have on my life? And so Paul's letters are full of teaching on what it means that our identity is now in Christ, that we're in him and he is in us. But what's interesting is here, Paul's not so much teaching on this, he's praying for it. He's praying that the reality that we are in Christ and he is in us will become more and more true, that Christ would dwell more and more in our hearts through faith. And and we can pray for this as well. I think just point out two ways that we can join Paul in praying for this. The first is just to pray for an awareness of your identity. It means praying for an awareness of who you are and I am in Christ. That your value, your worth is fully, completely wrapped up with Christ and what he's done and has nothing to do with your good or bad performance day by day. Rankin Wilborn is someone who wrote a book on union with Christ And in there, he has this quote. He says, to be found in Christ feels like he's talking to my face right now. Kyle, to be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempts to find or craft an acceptable identity or your tireless work to manage your own reputation, these things are over and done. You can rest. When God looks at you, he sees you hidden in Christ. This is freedom. This is confidence. This is good, good news. I added an exclamation point there. He just had a period. But it's good, good news. Like to be in Christ. That's freedom. That's rest. But we so often forget that or are ignorant of it and then start to act as if it's up to us. Start to think our worth and value is found in how well we're performing, what other people might be thinking and saying about us. And all of a sudden things start to fall apart and become frantic in our lives. And so we should pray, God, help me to know who I am in Christ and how you see me and to live from that. Because the other thing means to to be in Christ means to have, or to have Christ in us means to have all of his power, all of his resources available to us. To have Christ dwelling in you by faith means that you have access to his power, his peace, all of his resources. And, And yet, we so often forget that and just live according to our strength 
and forget that there is a wealth of power available to us through Christ because he's living in us. Uh, This past week, I I came across an article. uh, It was a clickbait article, and I clicked on it. Uh, But it was an article about a uh, family in California who discovered that they had 700 pounds of acorns uh, hidden in their walls. I think I have a picture of it. Yeah, there it is. Uh, There was a uh, pest control got called out for another reason, and they were looking, trying to figure out what's going on, uh, and they got into some of the walls and found all these acorns that they think uh, some sort of woodpecker stored up that stores up acorns for years. This family had a wealth of acorns in their walls that they had no idea about. Probably not something that you want, but might be there. We have a wealth of power and resources in us through Christ that we're so often unaware of. And so we just live according to our own strength. And Paul's praying, no, 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 live by faith that all that Christ is, all that he has is now available to you and me through faith. And you don't have to live in your own strength, in your own power, because he dwells in you through faith. And then the the second thing is that we might pray for a renovation according to our identity. Paul's specifically praying here that something that's already true, Christ dwelling in the lives of his followers, might become more and more and more true. He's praying that who we are would become more and more conformed to who Jesus is. He's praying for for a type of spiritual renovation in the homes of our lives. Uh, My my wife and I bought our first house uh, about four months, I think, before we got married. Uh, She corrected me. She bought our house. Uh, I didn't get it until we got married, and then it became mine. Um, But I can still remember walking through that house for the first time with uh, her and my father-in-law, and just like, this is a mess. Uh, they, the walls were scratched up. The, the floors were messed up. It was dirty. It stunk. Uh, the third floor had trash all over it, like empty beer cans, drug paraphernalia. Uh, I don't know what else. I'm like, this is a mess. Uh, and, and I moved in first, I think maybe three months before we got married. And I remember setting up my air mattress uh, on our living room floor that first night. Um, and it did not feel like home. Uh, I was like, Someone's going to come back in here trying to party again. Uh, I'm about to get jacked up. I I don't think I slept very much that night. But over the next couple months and years, slowly but surely, we renovated that house, along with help from our dads and families. And and it, it became more and more of our home. And it started to reflect more and more of who we are. And the old, dirty things got replaced with new, clean things. This is what Paul is praying the Holy Spirit would do in the lives of the followers of Christ, that he would renovate our lives by his power to make us more and more like Christ, to form us more and more in Christ's image, that the old sinful ways of thinking and feeling and living would be replaced with Christ's way of thinking and feeling and living, that Christ dwelling in us would become more and more evident, not only to us, but everyone around us as well. That doesn't happen in our own power. That doesn't happen by me trying to grind it out. That happens by God's spirit working in us to cause that to happen. And so, so we, we can and should pray for that. We, we, can re, we can pray, God, replace self-centeredness with a love for you and a love for other people. God, replace worry and anxiety and fear with peace in Christ. God, replace 
pride with humility. God, replace bitterness and anger with forgiveness. God, replace criticism and judgmentalism with grace. Like we, we can just stop and reflect and think, where do I want my life to more and more look like Christ? And then pray for that. We, we can pray, God, God, I want other people to see Christ in me. Would you, would you make that happen? We can pray for other Christians. God, would you conform them more and more to the image of Christ so that when the world looks at Christians, they see more of who Jesus is and not more of the mess that we are often. God, would you do that? Like the, If Jesus dwells in us by faith, then we can pray by faith that God would make us more and more like him. That's a simple but powerful prayer you and I can be praying for ourselves and others as we head into life action and far, far beyond that. That's the first way that Paul prays that what's true would become real. And then we find the second way in the end of verse 17 up through verse 19. Pray for a greater experience or pray for a greater personal experience of Jesus' love for you. So Paul prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's praying not simply for more factual knowledge about Christ's love. He's praying for a type of experiential knowledge of Christ's love. And he gives us a reason for this prayer, the request of the prayer, and then the result of the prayer being answered. And so we're going to look at first the reason and the result, and then we'll look at actually the request. First, the reason for this prayer. Christ's love is our anchor. Paul prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. One of the ways to think about that is the the more anchored, the more grounded, the more rooted we are in Christ's love, the, the better we're able to face everything else that comes our way in this life. We're better able to face failure and criticism because we know it's Christ's love that defines us and not success or the approval of other people. We're, we're better able to face temptation because we know that Christ's love is better than whatever temporary pleasure Satan is dangling before us. We're better able to face suffering and difficulty because we know that Jesus is with us in the midst of it, holding on to us and actually working good for us, even though we may not have any idea what that looks like. See, Christ's love is this anchor. And the more rooted and grounded we are in his love, the the less that all the winds that blow against us in this life will be able to shake us or topple us over. We, We have a playground in our backyard and I think I've already mentioned this, it's a playground we bought from Costco and then put together, and and it took forever to put it together. And so once we finally had it together, uh, it it seemed, it was heavy and it seemed sturdy. Uh, And so although the directions told me I should uh, drive these like two feet long stakes down into the ground, I thought I've spent enough time on this. This thing is sturdy. It's not going to fall over. We're good. And I forgot about it. And about a year later, uh, in the middle of the night, we, we had one of those kind of like windstorms uh, where it's like so windy, your house is shaking. And so I woke up the, the next morning and I went to our back window and I looked out uh, and this is what I found. This is the picture I found. 
what I was convinced wouldn't topple over blew over like a toothpick when the right amount of wind hit it. If we aren't anchored, rooted, and grounded in the love of Christ, we can so easily topple over when the winds of life blow against us. We'll give up where we shouldn't give up. We'll give in to temptation in places we we never thought possible. Or, Or our hearts will just grow cold and bitter towards God as we face all the types of suffering and difficulty that come our way in this life. See, Paul's praying for an experiential knowledge of Christ's love, not because it's like this optional add-on to the Christian life, but because it is absolutely necessary for you and I to live the Christian life and make it through it and not blow blow over or get toppled over. We can see this also in the desired result of prayer as well, that we would grow in spiritual maturity. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's language for growing in maturity as a Christian. You can look at Ephesians 4.13 to kind of cross-reference that. But, but just as children grow by feasting on food, so we grow spiritually by feasting on Christ's love. It, it is the fuel that enables us to grow in maturity. And so because Christ's love is our anchor and because Christ's love is what enables us to grow, Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's the request of the prayer. To experience the immeasurable and inexhaustible love of Christ. Paul gives four dimensions to this love. It's width, it's length, it's height, it's depth. And what's interesting is down through the ages, people have not been able to agree on, well, what's he pointing to in these dimensions? And here's my suggestion of why that is. Because I think Paul wants us to use our imaginations for a little bit, to realize how vast Christ's love is to think about those dimensions and just to fill in some things that would help us to fill those dimensions in. That he wants us to imagine, what does it mean for Christ's love to be wide and long and high and deep? And so with that in mind, I want to give a couple suggestions, one for each of those of what that might mean. By the way, there are no more notes beyond this. So if you're taking notes, you can put them down. And part of what my prayer is, is that just even as we talk through these things, the love of Christ might drop a little bit more from our heads down into our hearts. First of all, we might think about the width of Christ's love. That his love is wide enough to cover over all our sins and all the sins of everyone, everywhere, who would trust in him to save them. We don't grasp the width of Christ's love until we grasp the width of our sin. If I think that my sin is a ruler width wide, a foot wide, then my experience of Christ will be, of Christ's love, will be a ruler width wide. But if I recognize my sin is wider than the ocean, then my experience of Christ's love will be wider than the ocean as well. We, we don't see how incredible his love is until we're confronted with the awfulness of our sin. 
And this is part of what God does, not only in converting people, but it's part of what he does in followers of Christ throughout the rest of our lives to expose sin in us that we didn't see, or maybe just the same sins we keep committing over and over again, so that we might confess it, so that in that moment then, God might shove the cross right back in front of our face and say, but Jesus covered over that too. See how great his love is for you. Like, I think we're scared at times to have our sin exposed and have to confess it and deal with it. But the only reason that God does that is so that Christ's love for us might get driven down deeper into us. The the, the second thing, the length of Christ's love, that his love lasts forever. That before the foundation of the world, he chose you and I in Christ. Before we ever did anything, before there was anything in us to earn his love, to gain his love, to attract his love, he looked out and he said, this one is mine and I'll give up my son for him or her. Why? I I, I don't know, apart from to display how great his love and grace is in Christ. And, And it's a love that lasts forever, that is not based on my performance or your performance or how well we're doing. It's a love that loves us just as much on our bad, awful, terrible days and weeks as it does on our best days and weeks when we think we're killing it. In fact, it's often in the bad, awful, terrible days that we recognize more of just how great Christ's love is for us. I appreciate the love of my wife far more when I am a mess and falling apart than when I think I'm an A-plus husband and killing it. Because I walk away from the former times thinking, Man, she, she loves me. And I don't know why, because I keep giving her reasons not to. You and I give Jesus thousands, if not millions of reasons, day by day by day by day, why he should not love us. And he just refuses to give up. His love is steadfast, unending, and will never be taken away from us. Third, that we might know the height of Christ's love a love that carries us to heights that are impossible to us. You and I face all sorts of things in our lives that feel utterly impossible, feel like mountains in front of us, so we think there's no way I can do that. And then Christ holds us and carries us to heights we can imagine. Maybe it's an act of obedience God is calling you to. Maybe it's a decision he's asking you or I to make with your life or your family Or maybe it's just in the normal life he's called you to in in your job, with your friends, with your family that just leaves you feeling so in over your head. It's when we are stretched beyond our limits that the limitless love of Christ drops in even more and carries us. And it's deep. It's a love that sticks with us and holds on to us through the deepest valleys of this life. Like it's, It's often as we walk through the depths of suffering that the depths of Christ's love for us become not just something we know in our heads, but something we so desperately need to hold on to us, to carry us through, and to be with us in the midst of it. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, when we suffer, when we observe the universality of death's decree, when we are debilitated, when we observe an extraordinarily barbaric bit of cruelty, when we are sidelined by chronic illness, we are impelled to pause and reflect on the love of God for sinners and rebels, such as we are. The trinkets and bab- babbles that otherwise capture so much of our attention fade away, 
and the eternal things assume their rightful place. Then we know what it means to confess that, the, that God's love is as shoreless and endless as eternity. And describing Christ's love a, as a sea is a great way to describe it because Paul's praying that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's a way we might think of it. Christ's love is like an ocean and our hearts are like a little plastic cup. There's no way you could ever fit the ocean in a plastic cup. There's so much more to the ocean than what would fit inside a little plastic cup. But what you can fit in there is no less part of the ocean. Our, our hearts, our lives could never contain the fullness of Christ's love for us. There's so much more to experience, which should leave us longing for more of it, which should leave us praying, God, God make my heart maybe the size of a, a five-gallon bucket or maybe a 50-gallon drum that I might get more, taste and see more and more while still knowing there's so much more to experience of his love. And so we can and should pray with Paul that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to know its breadth and width and height and depth. Let me just point out two other things here before we close in praying and singing about the love of God in Christ. The first is specifically related to singing and worship. Singing songs of worship can be a really helpful way that the truth that we know drops down into our hearts or that we experience the love of Christ in a new way. There's a song that Shane and Shane have come out with over the past year called Sing Hallelujah. Um, it's actually a kid's song. Uh, but the, the song does something to my heart because the chorus says, Jesus, you are the great I am. Jesus, the pure and spotless lamb. Jesus, it's my blood on your hands. How could you love me? I will never understand. That, that, that song has the power to move me to tears and, and I rarely ever cry in my life. And I think it's just because it captures the wonder of Christ's love in a really powerful way. And there's lots of songs like that, one of which we're going to sing in a couple moments. But it's the beauty of us listening to worship music, singing to worship music, and gathering together to sing with one another. Because that, that's the second thing. We need other Christians to grow in the love of Christ. Did you notice Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints? Not simply by ourselves, with others, together. This is part of why we gather as Christians, loving one another, hearing the Bible preached, singing together, in hopes that we might experience more and more of the love of Christ. See, God does extraordinary things, like enabling us to know more of the limitless love of Christ through really ordinary means often. And so we should pray, God, help me to experience more of the love of Christ for me. And then we should pick up our Bibles and open them up and read for a little bit. Or, or then we should confess our sins before God. Or then we should gather together with other Christians to encourage them and hold them accountable. Or then we should gather on a Sunday morning to, to sing together, to, to celebrate communion and baptism, to hear the, the Bible preached. And th then we should maybe consider setting aside a week straight where we gather together each night to sing together and hear the Bible preach. Not because there's anything extraordinary in any of those things. They're very, very ordinary on their own. 
but because God's Spirit can move in powerful ways through ordinary means to help us experience the depth of Christ's love for us in new and powerful ways. Do you, do you want to grow in your experiential knowledge of Christ's love? Let me give you just one really practical way we might pursue that. Pray that God would help you to experience his love and then show up the week of life action and see what he might do. Because this is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Why not pray for him to do something great in you, in the church, maybe even in the community, and then show up and see what he might do? Not just that week, but but beyond it as well. And so let's pray together to that end. Father, you are the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of everyone and everything. We bow before you in worship and wonder, and yet come before you with boldness because of Jesus and what he's done for us. We ask that out of your limitless resources and power, you would help us to know and believe more fully who we are in Christ, finding our worth and value fully in him, to know more fully the power, the resources that are available to us through him, that we might not live in our own strength, but might rely on his strength at work in us. Father, we pray that you would help us to experience more of Christ's love. Our ability to know and experience his love is so small, but your power is so great. So please open our eyes to more of the width, length, height and depth of his love. We can't do this in ourselves or in others, but you can. And so we pray that you would because you can do more than we ask or imagine. And so we pray that you'd work for your glory in us and in Christ Jesus. In your name, amen.